from the nation's capital, this is DC Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Back at our microphones, ladies and gentlemen, Will Marling, the Executive Director of the National Organization for Victim Assistance, www.trinova.org. We're going to be talking about three items, the dramatic increase in federal funds for victims of crime. The second, the new report, a new report from the Department of Justice stating that the disabled have more than double the rate of violent crime. And the third issue, are cameras for police and what does it mean for victims? Will Marling, welcome back to D.C. Public Safety. Leonard, thank you. It's always a privilege to be with you. All right, we have a new report out uh, that basically says uh, with federal crime victim funding expected to nearly quadruple in the next fiscal year, states have begun to plan as to how to spend what amounts to an unexpected windfall. That was good news for advocates who have been fighting for years to get the full amount of available funds under the Victims of Crime Compensation Act. Explain all this to me, Will. Why is the federal government suddenly finding quadruple the money to give the victims of crime? Well, that's a great question, actually. A, a question that many people aren't aware that should even be asked. In 1984, President Reagan established the Task Force for Victims of Crime, and out of that very significant task force came the Office for Victims of Crime and the Victims of Crime Act Fund. Congress said, we're going to set up a fund that takes last year's forfeitures, fines, and seizures at a federal level, and then we're going to use that for victim crime victim compensation and crime victim services, like funding victim advocate roles, uh, that vocation. And so since 1984, that has been in play. The fund has grown. And, of course, advocates, those who work in this particular area, were certainly very aware of the Victims of Crime Act Fund because many times it was, it's, it's funding these vocations out in uh, you know, the justice process in state and local jurisdictions and as well at, federal, at a federal level. But trying to see that uh, balanced was important. So Congress set a cap on that. As the fund grew and got to be very significant, well into the billions of dollars, Congress said, okay, we're going to set a cap that was most recently established at about $750, $754 million. So we've been discussing this issue and seeing that cap raise, you know, with uh, congressional action, many times things can get a little behind. And as long as it's working, nobody's messing with it. But we've, we've been arguing for many years that that cap needs to be raised to meet the needs not only of victims of crime, but also to understand that, hey, the money is there. So things coalesce, it appears, at this point where congressional leadership really took hold of this to say, okay, yes, it's time to truly raise this cap, and as well to hear from victim assistance organizations and agencies who would say, yes, it's time, and what would our dreams be? Well, wow, the money is there, and they really went to you know, great lengths to expand it to nearly quadruple. Now, what is represented in what, what looks to be the fiscal year 2016 appropriation for this would move it to about $2.6 billion, but it also represents some other additions of funding uh, designation. We call them earmarks. And so we're, we're watching this carefully because we want to make sure that as it was originally intended, the Victims of Crime Act Fund actually is directly trying to meet the needs of victims of crime through compensation, victim compensation, and victim services specifically. 
Well, crime has returned uh, to a national or as a national discussion point, Will. Um, mm -hmm. So it's sort of like a rising tide lifts all boats because my question is this. This is principally a fund to deal with financial compensation for victims of crime if they are injured due to a violent crime or, for instance, if a loved one is murdered and they don't have the money to pay for funeral costs. Uh, this is how... This is the reason for the act, for the funds specifically, and it's administered by all the 50 states. So the whole idea is to reimburse victims of crime for their experiences, correct? That's exactly right. The, there are a lot of significant expenses just financially. We're, we're taking out the emotional dimension, but the, the financial impact of ending up in the hospital, of having medical treatment, of having, a, having to conduct a funeral, pay for a funeral, having to get counseling, and loss of wages, uh, for instance. And a number of the states have those kinds of categories for reimbursement or compensation to support victims of crime. It is a last-payer fund because sometimes people are insured, they have say, medical care that would cover that kind of thing. But, of course, many people aren't expecting to be a victim, and they're not expecting to, you know, suffer a profound physical loss or financial loss. And so that's, yes, that's, you're exactly right. That's what it's designed to do. Each state has a VOCA administrator that takes their formula's appropriation and sometimes applies it to the state itself and the, the money they actually raise for victim compensation, which can also come from, you know, forfeitures, fines and seizures and penalties and this kind of thing. It's, it really was a brilliant concept, in my view, and I think others would agree with me, for Congress to say, hey, wait a minute, this is a great way to deal with this very profound need that represents uh, the losses that victims suffer after having been harmed by crime. But it's not that I disagree with anything that I'm about to read, but some of the examples that were that was given by the one article that I'm reading in terms of where the money is going, um, crime victim organizations such as domestic violence shelters, child abuse centers, as well as court-appointed sexual advocates uh, and organizations that assist homeless youth, that sort of takes it away from the arena of reimbursing somebody for uh, the injuries that they sustain in a violent crime. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good observation, an interesting one, because we consider these earmarks and the risk that you run for earmarks, even with very appropriate and understandable concerns of trying to fund the needs of victims in other sectors. For instance, you know, there's the, the 2016 fiscal year appropriation, uh, the Senate appropriation bill for VOCA would give $50 million to victims, toward victims of trafficking. The, the challenge that we face when you start having earmarks is it really restricts and complicates how the fund then is applied. And what we need ultimately is a fund that understandably holds the, the users accountable to address victim compensation, victim services. But when you start having to create percentages that go toward this and that, it, it can become very complicated to the point that, you know, maybe you have certain needs in a certain jurisdiction and they're far less needy in another one. And so this is always our concern where you don't simply have a good fund, strong, healthy, robust fund that is, as you say, toward these specific needs of victims, not 
special needs of victims or special populations of victims, because they all should represent that. Another concern, just quite frankly, in terms of some of the potential appropriations is toward uh, prevention issues. And again, those are extremely important, but we don't want to fund uh, prevention training and initiatives, for instance, a community-based violence prevention initiative as part of what could be considered, you know, the next, uh, the 16 appropriation. You know, important work, yes, but we don't want to put that on the backs of people who are actually trying to recover from the losses they've suffered at the hands of a perpetrator. Well, it's either an act on the part of Congress expressing concern uh, regarding victims of crime or a recognition that the criminal justice system needs more money. Um, so I don't know what that is. I mean, so they've quadrupled the amount of funding in fiscal year 2016 under the Victims of Crime Act. Um, is it a concern for victims or is it just uh, a funding mechanism for the larger criminal justice system? System. Well, it, it, certainly from the standpoint of those who provide victim assistance, victim services, and also uh, manage victim compensation funding, we all consider it a very positive step in a, a very good direction to, first of all, raise the cap that was established because there, the fund is quite robust and the needs are there, clearly. I think the, the, the simple concern uh, to express it is for Congress really to let the people that know how to do this work do the work to make the funds available to victims of crime and to those who should manage the funding and then to serve victims of crime in that regard. There's the there's concern about non-VOCA authorized funding as we consider it that that looks to be roughly $441 million in this fiscal 16, fiscal year 16 appropriation. And so that the concern there becomes, oh wow, Others looking at this fund and saying, well, I can get some money for my particular program, as good and viable as that might be, but that program might not represent the needs specifically of victims recovering from a criminal incident. And that's really what we want to make sure happens. This fund, the, VOCA, the Victims of Crime Act fund, is for victim compensation and specifically for victim services, and we'd like to see it protected that way. Not just a larger general fund where everybody can dip into under any justification that the program or the effort serves victims of crimes, but specifically making sure that victims are compensated and victims receive the services that they need. And the only way to do that is through the Victims of Crime Act. That's right. Now, if the Victims of Crime Act fund were to disappear at a federal level, we, we know that hopefully the states would continue their level of funding, you know, but obviously it would be a significant reduction if you're talking about, you know, what currently is the appropriation of 2.361 billion yeah. under the, for the current cap. <laughs> That's you know. a lot of money going for that, going yeah. from 745 million to 2.36 billion. It's almost uh, an inevitable opportunity for people to say, how else can we use those funds? So from the standpoint of the National Organization for Victim Assistance, what you guys are saying is, wait a minute, uh, be sure that the great majority of people, the victims of crime, uh, are taken care of, and before you start talking about siphoning it, it all for other purposes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's always this kind of fine line you walk, because you we do not want to sound in any way like all, all of these other initiatives that at least we see listed as uh, potential appropriations or earmarks under such a, a bill 
for the VOCA fund, you know, that they're, they're not meaningful. They're not good. The concern, though, is it becomes murky. And we, you know, we're just strongly, strongly joining with others to, to suggest or request that, you know, the expanded use of those funds really be limited for purposes that are authorized under the original VOCA statute. That's what we're really arguing for, because when it was established, that's exactly what was delineated. You know, this is for victims of crime to help compensate them for their losses, to help them in the recovery process, to give them access to services that are specific and important for those who have suffered harm uh, at the hands of, you know, criminal activity. All right. We're going to shift gears uh, a bit, Will, and talk about the fact that in 2013, this was a report uh, released by the Department of Justice on May 21st, 2015, but the data goes back to 2013. In 2013, the rate of crime, the rate of violent crime against persons with disabilities was more than double the rate for people without disabilities. So I found that a bit disturbing, uh, talking about uh, 1.3 million non-fatal victimizations, which accounted for 21% of all violent victimizations in 2013. Uh, this is the first time, to my knowledge, my years within the criminal justice system, that the disabled have been looked at uh, from the standpoint of violent crime. And I was sort of mm-hmm. shocked to come to find out they had double the rate of the non-disabled community. Do you have any comments? Well, yeah, it's an important understanding of the needs of persons with disabilities and the impact of crime on them. The one thing I want to point out here, and this is a bit of a, you know, a personal commentary, what I appreciate about you as we, we have these interactions is that you you know, you wanted to talk about these things. I didn't pitch the idea of talking about crime against persons with disabilities sure. or the VOCA fund. And, and so you're pointing out something that really encourages me, and that is the, the, the work that is done to talk about this at a public level, you took note of, and that's what we need to do. It's why I love the radio show, because of how many people you reach. This particular statistic, we all inherently knew who do this work, that people with disabilities are significantly more vulnerable. We have a toll-free victim assistance line here with uh, the National Organization for Victim Assistance. And so we have an anecdotal approach to this, but we recognize when people are calling and they're declaring, you know, I'm a person with a disability and this is what I'm experiencing, that there is a greater vulnerability that, they're, that they have because of their situation. And the preponderance of people who know them and work with them are the ones that many times are, are the people that are taking advantage of them. I'm, it's really it's troubling on one hand to hear the, the higher rate of incidents for, for folks with disabilities, but it's also an important piece of awareness that we pay attention to these needs and we take advantage of what we know to help them out. I want to talk about serious violent crime directed towards individuals with disabilities, but we're going to break and get right back to that. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Will Marling, the executive director for the National Organization for Victim Assistance, www.trinova.org, www.trinova.org. Nova's been around for, my, uh, my gosh, about 40, 50 years. I mean, it's the one of the most respected organizations within uh, the criminal justice system, One of the, certainly one of the most respected 
organizations in terms of fighting for victims of crime. So we always appreciate Will coming in to talk about topics that are pertinent to victims of crime. But let me go back to that stat, Will Marling. Uh, serious violent crime, rape or sexual assault, robbery and aggravated assault accounted for a greater percentage of all violent crimes against people with disabilities, 39 percent, com then compared to people without disabilities, 29 percent. So not only <laughs> is their rate of violent crime double uh, those people without disabilities, serious violent crime seems to be a, a, a significant issue. So again, what do we say about a society that allows crime against the disabled to to uh, occur without a larger public policy discussion yeah it's it truly is an important public policy discussion as well as a uh, a specifically practical need what we recognize is that people with disabilities first of all are more vulnerable because of their situation their their ability to be empowered to to make choices to in a sense, protect themselves and so on. They're, they can be under the care of somebody who would take advantage of that. But also the, the awareness that many times they're not either understood or heard in trying to respond and report that they have been a victim. So if, if a person is in a context where the ability to communicate is limited or their, uh, the, the needs that they have emotionally or whatever they might be are are judged by a person listening to them, that, that can profoundly impact the caregiver or the first responder's willingness or perception of responding to that need. And that makes them doubly vulnerable. So we, we as a society, we can grow in this. We can grow in our awareness. We can grow in our sensitivity. And we can also grow in our commitment to say, okay, wait a minute. If somebody is attempting to communicate with us their particular need, something that has happened with them, we should actually start by saying, okay, this has happened to the best of our knowledge. How are we then going to respond to it? The response, I think, is startling because half do not even report mm -hmm. crimes to law enforcement. Nearly half of violent crimes against persons with disabilities was reported to police in 2013. Uh, the reasons people with disabilities did not report crime to police because they felt uh, they could deal with it another way. They believe that was 44 percent. They mm -hmm. believed it was not important enough. 21 percent. They believed that police wouldn't help. 19 percent, uh, and other reasons. 38. So they're not reporting the crimes to law enforcement in um, the majority of cases, and, and that's, uh, that's startling. So not only do they have to face this victimization, uh, they don't even appeal to the larger criminal justice system to assist them. Yeah, and quite honestly, that's not far off the mark from people without disabilities who are trying to report. And, of course, then you could move into the category of children who are not themselves going to be able to report even at all. So uh, it, it's, it, it demonstrates limitations that people have to declaring that somebody else has harmed them. And in the position, of, in, in, from the perspective of a person with a disability, if it's a primary caregiver, how are they going to get even around that person? Or they believe, because it's somebody they know and that they have trusted, that they can manage that situation on their own, which in many times, of course, is not the case. So it's, it, it affirms really our need to make sure that we make the vehicles for reporting as available 
and effective as possible so that if they want to take advantage of them, they know that they're as robust and trustworthy as they can be so that they will. Otherwise, we do empower people to make their own choices about how they want to handle their victimization. And sometimes they believe that the best way to approach this is not to report it to law enforcement for some reason. But thank God there are victims organizations and community organizations and organizations like the National Organization for Victim Assistance that does provide a lifeline to these individuals because if they're confused and if they didn't report it and they've been victimized, at least they can call you up and find out what the alternatives are. Again, www www.trinova.org. Give the 800 number for the uh, organization, Will. Yeah, it's 800-879-6682 or 800-TRINOVA, T-R-Y-N-O-V-A. You know, without organizations like yours and organizations at the state level and local level where they can pick up the phone and, and have these conversations, they would be completely lost. Well, and I appreciate your kudos. I, I have to say also that there's just there are so many good people and good works, good agencies on the field in direct contact with people with disabilities or available at a very local level serving that, uh, you know, we celebrate that important work that's being done there. And we're trying to connect people many times when they call us. We're trying to connect them to local resources. So we consider even our victim assistance line a resource referral line. Uh, we don't want people calling us because they're, they're, it's an emergency. Emergency. I mean, that's either a 911 or a local emergency service provider call. But we do definitely try to connect them to the expertise they need. And, you know, there are just also limits. You know, we just got done talking about the Victims of Crime Act fund, and it would be great, again, for that funding to, to be open to helping victims in that situation, you know, to, to be able to fund the needs that they have. And for states, who have to allocate that funding to feel like they can expand even the services they want to provide because there's more funding for that. I mean, we are excited about the VOCA fund expanding, no, no question. And the states and the, and the appropriations, the, the VOCA, the administrators are certainly talking with excitement about the possibilities, which is great. We just, of course, want to see it continue. And especially we want to see it continue for the people most vulnerable in our society. Uh, the, the the very young many times and folks with disabilities. I think I'm going to go back to my original point, and that is after spending 10 years as a spokesperson for the crime prevention field, I was shocked uh, because I knew and speculated and believed that people with disabilities had a higher rate of violent crime, but not twice the rate. So mm. I'm very glad that uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics came out with this report and made a problem, I think, that may have been not on the radar of individuals uh, to make it a, a prominent thought when you're discussing criminal justice policy in the country. Let's move on to uh, issue number three, cameras for law enforcement. There's been a huge debate, as you well know, Will Marling, of, all throughout the United States in terms of police use of force, appropriate use of force, inappropriate mm -hmm. use of force. And one of the solutions to all of this has been to put body cameras on police officers. Uh, and many people feel that this is a wonderful idea. Data uh, seems to indicate a dramatic reduction in complaints against law enforcement when uh, the process is taped or uh, um, uh, videotaped or uh, taped digitally. And what does this mean, however, in terms of victims of crime? Because non-law enforcement organizations are going to file Freedom of Information Act requests 
and mm-hmm. they're going to want all of that digital tape. And there are victims of crime who are going to appear in these cameras. What are the implications in terms of body cameras for law enforcement and victims of crime? Oh, it's a superb question. Setting aside philosophical considerations, policy, legislative decisions surrounding this kind of an issue and what's driving it, practically speaking, a body-worn camera is going to be able to access very private contexts and potentially private conversations that would revolve around victims and their needs. So in contrast to, say, uh, cruiser cameras that have been in play for a long time and, you know, it seemingly have found a meaningful place in our society for, to, to help justify the force used or, really, to hold somebody accountable for excessive use of force. The body-worn cameras are, are on an officer who's now walking into what potentially is a, a private household and should be considered private. And the concerns, many concerns revolve around the impact of that on victims, uh, the, the context of them being recorded, for instance, in a profound moment of trauma, of grief, of struggle, and how that information might be disseminated, might, it might be used, and it might actually be used to critique and judge them. I mean, we're, we already struggle in our society in many ways when it comes to the judicial process. You take a victim who suffered loss, you put them on the stand, they get cross-examined to the point of... Uh, sometimes just just painful, painful accusation of themselves trying to trying to impact the testimony of that witness at, who is a victim, and then you take the context of that immediate aftermath moment when they're going through a traumatic reaction and that's being recorded, and then how that might be portrayed in a court of law where you know it's calm, it's sterile, it's very much removed from the threat and from the trauma that that victim has experienced. These are the kinds of things that we're very, very concerned about, even to the point of, you know, a policy that could say, well, the officer is going to go in the house and they're going to ask somebody, well, uh, may I record you? Well, I can tell you from, you know, having been in those situations, that person might not even hear what you say because of the traumatic impact, mm-hmm. the, the shock, the disbelief, the denial that they're going through. So there are truly profound, real concerns that we have about how body-worn cameras might actually do what we call secondary injury, secondary harm, secondary traumatization to victims of crime. Because when the local television station files a Freedom of Information Act request to get the footage, uh, they could have some, they could uncover some very sensitive moments in the lives of victims of crime. Uh, What's to stop them from putting that up on the evening news? Now, I'm not suggesting that would necessarily happen, but it could happen. I'm going to go over three quick scenarios. My Mm -hmm. husband beat me. That's That's number one. Number Number two, my neighbor broke into my house. Number three, John Doe robbed me. Now, all three place the victim in a certain amount of jeopardy, and all three could possibly get that victim, create a scenario where that victim becomes re-victimized by saying any one of those phrases. Uh, So if this is publicized, if it gets out, if it's allowed to go out under a Freedom of Information Act request, um, it could have profound implications for victims uh, and their willingness to give law enforcement the information they need to do their jobs. 
No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, those are our, our primary concerns. There are others. They're just they're not ancillary as such, but they're tangential to what we're discussing here. For instance, what if you have a person uh, a person with a disability and it's it's a mental health need, and you are responding to the situation, and they see a camera on you, and they suddenly it creates and provokes reactions within them that are secondary or separate from even traumatic reactions from what they've experienced. Or maybe they're being accused of something and they see that camera. I mean, that's a separate issue on one hand. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that we need to think through very, very carefully regarding the knock-on effect of what seems to be a very simple thing for the average person. Hey, we put a camera on a person, put a camera on a police officer, uh, we see what they do, we hold them accountable. You know, we've got that picture in front of us. Well, that picture still doesn't tell everything there is to tell. There's the time before that camera started, and there's the time after that camera stopped. And these are the kinds of things that will continue to impact victims because of what might be recorded, what their, their privacy that might be violated or invaded. Well, and we only have about a minute left. Have any, has any victim contacted the hotline at the National Organization for Victim Assistance bringing, the, bringing this issue up? Or have, has NOVA had an opportunity to formulate uh, some faults and, and some policy direction for the rest of us? Uh, well, to my knowledge, we haven't had anybody contact us in that regard. Uh, but uh, I sat on a local panel in the, my local county here, I was asked to, to sit in on a panel, the discussion mm -hmm. of body-worn cameras, and which I really appreciated. And law enforcement was asking um, me, as well as others uh, who are part of the victim assistance movement, to discuss this issue. And so we tried to make it very clear as to our concerns. And, you know, we felt heard. Of course, the policy has to be drafted and implemented, but, you know, it's a it's a fairly profound issue, and as well, it's it's a fairly expensive one. Well, you know, we've, we've got to wrap up <laughs> wrap up all three of these issues: the dramatic increase in federal funds for victims of crime, and the fact that uh, individuals with disabilities have twice the rate of violent crime, and body cameras, and what it means to victims of crime. These are all unfolding events that we're going to have to pay close attention to over the course uh, of the next year as we really um, ratchet up our discussions on crime and criminal justice. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today has been Will Marling, the Executive Director for the National Organization for Victim Assistance, www.trinova.org, www.trinova.org. Always a pleasure to have Will Marling by our microphones. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day. <laughs>